Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. And welcome back to the show. Hola, bola. Okay, so one of the stories we spoke about yesterday that continues to have what I call legs is the story about what went on with the three people who were testifying as presidents of college campuses, notable ones, Ivy Leagues, in front of Congress. And the clip that I played yesterday about five times of President Liz McGill which I'm going to play again because it actually made more front page news today as it is assimilating in the psyche of a lot of different Americans who today have responded to it. Justin, you have that clip from yesterday? This is the clip from Liz McGill, the head of Penn. Let me know when you've got it. And, and then we're going to play it for you. It was astonishing. Uh, this woman is the president of Penn and she is, You'll hear her responding to a congresswoman, Elise Stepanek. McGill at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your testimony that you will not answer yes? If it... uh, is if the yes speech or becomes no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Okay, so that actually that little colloquy uh, raised so many eyebrows that many people have now called for Miss McGill to resign. Many, many notable people. But what I wanted you to hear, clip six, is a comment about from testimony from a student at Penn itself was testifying this he was responding to mike johnson the speaker of the house most of campus sought refuge in our rooms as classmates and professors chanted proudly for the genocide of jews while igniting smoke bombs and defacing school property the neighboring university's president immediately released a statement describing this as a brazen display of anti-semitism he went on saying silence in the face of last night's demonstration of anti-semitism and hate near our doorstep is not an option for me. Well, the doorstep of the neighboring university is in fact Penn. And in fact, Penn's president did choose silence. The neighboring university's president swiftly denounced the incident, and yet our president cannot. Because the glorious October 7th, and you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die, are words said not by Hamas, but by my classmates and professors. And because despite all of this, I am adamant and hopeful that we will not accept, least of all, embrace this horrific new normal on college campuses today. 
Uh, and that's just a little bit of a of, of a speech from from a student at Penn who wanted to be heard. And that's and and frankly, it's those voices that we really need to be hearing right now. And I want to thank Congress for having these hearings. Because apparently what's gone on since October 7th on college campuses is not a one-off. It's not uh, an explosion of something that's a one-day news story and then is dying down. It seems to be the culmination of a concerted effort to brainwash many different students uh, and to allow into our schools many different professors who feel comfortable in telling a history from a point of view that has, frankly, almost no factual bearing on the truth. And I keep coming back to a couple of things in my head. I keep coming back to this idea of people having to be defined in this intersectionality stuff about their color, their race, their creed, their religion, their faith, and that therefore that puts you on one side or the other of an equation on whether you're a victim or you're a perpetrator. You're a bully and a racist or you're a victim and you're an innocent. Because in real life, we know people are not that simple and life is far more complex. And if you didn't know that, you ought to remember the life and legacy of Norman Lear and watch any one of his brilliant television shows of the 1970s to understand just how complex actual people really are and how we are not able to be, nor should we ever able to be reduced to the color of our skin or our background or the town we grew up in or the religion of our parents. We're not that simple, thankfully. And that what we have in common in terms of our yearning for freedom and tolerance and acceptance and, and being able to express ourselves and being able to express our faiths, that is the bedrock of the best of America. And it is Pearl Harbor Day, and it's important to remember what we fought for in World War II. What did we fight for? Did we fight for the right to castigate each other on the basis of our race and our creed? Or did we fight for the right to be Americans and to be free from that kind of bigotry? We fought for the ideals of this country. And the people that died in that fight deserve our honor and respect by having us live those ideals and not betray them. And when I hear that Jews of all people, and I have to laugh at this because I can't help myself, are accused of being colonialists, I say to myself, why? <laughs> like, where did that come from? Colonialists? Can you show me the colonies that Jews have inhabited throughout the planet Earth? Please, I'd like to know. Who did we follow and where did we colonialize? We were people in exile from our original place, Israel, for thousands of years. We finally got back there in a historic, miraculous moment in the middle of the 20th century after almost being completely exterminated on the face of planet Earth and would have been if the Nazis had been successful. But they managed to take a good chunk out of us, didn't they? We were 13 million Jews at the beginning of World War II. We were seven after. Six million, almost 50% of Jews worldwide were exterminated. And by the way, only five or six years. How efficient were they? How miraculously efficient were they, right? If they'd had a few more years, we would be gone. All the brain surgeons, all the Nobel Prize winners, all the people of science, literature, art, humanities engineering, 
gone. Gone. All the contributions of the Jewish people, gone. No Mel Brooks. No Blazing Saddles. No Jonah Salk. No polio vaccine. Gone. Saul Bellow. Philip Roth. George Gershwin. Rogers and Hammerstein. Harold Arlen. Jerome Kern. Lerner and Lowe. The American Theater. Gone. Never to have happened. Vanished from the earth. Gone. So you tell me how Jewish people are colonialists. You just tell me that. I, I really want to get that. I don't get that. The Brits were colonialists. They did good things and they did bad things. You want to call them colonialists? They were. They believed that the sun shouldn't set on the British Empire, and for about 100 years or so, they were pretty good at it. Pretty darn good at it. The Japanese, they tried to take over China. The Russians expanded into the Soviet Union. The Turks and the Turkish Empire. Constantinople, the Greeks, the Romans, colonialists. You want to call them colonialists. Conquerors, we used to call them. You want to call them colonialists? We can call them conquerors. Arabia, the Arab world, conquerors, colonialists. All the people that inhabited different places in Africa and took over places like that. The people that came to this country and took over for indigenous people. The Spanish that took over Mexico that displaced indigenous people there. The list goes on and on. The history of the human being is the history of exploration and colonialism. But Jews, we've been yearning to get back to a tiny bit of land that you can barely see on a globe called Israel. When I first heard this, and honestly, I was first hearing this more or less around the outbreak of this war, I laughed. Because I thought to myself, who came up with that? You want to fight over a tiny bit of land in Israel and whether people of Arab descent, people that call themselves Palestinians because the Brits called them Palestinians in the 1900s and through the 1940s, whether they had some displacement and they were forced to move when the Israelis were there. Yeah, we can have those conversations. Of course we can and we should. And we want peaceful resolution. And we want everybody to be able to feel like their life is meaningful and has self-determination and pride. Who doesn't want that? The Israelis want that, for sure. But to accuse Jews as a Jewish people of being colonialist, like that's a dirty word. And conquerors and oppressors. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. The women in Saudi Arabia couldn't even drive five years ago. They weren't even allowed to drive. They weren't allowed to, and I think they're still not allowed to leave the country without the permission of their husband. Jordan isn't run by Palestinians, even though Palestinians make up the majority of the people in Jordan. It's run by the King Hussein of Hashemite descent. Assad is a criminal and a tyrant. In Syria, and look what's happened to poor Lebanon. It's run by a terrorist organization called Hezbollah, which is directly funded by the Iranians, who themselves are no bargain, as we know. Look at the Arab world. Look at the people who surround Israel. 
And you tell me. If you had to live in a place, where would you rather live? As an Arab. This has become a crazy situation. And I got up this morning and I saw that the Republicans in the Senate have held back many billions of dollars to fund Ukraine. And I'm sorry about that because I think Ukraine needs to be supported. I think they need to be supported because I think we need to stop Putin in his boots. And I think the bravery, the extraordinary bravery and the suffering of the Ukrainian people, which also has not been fully paid attention to, is something that is extraordinary in this world, where people are fighting for freedom and self-determination, and we, as Americans, should be aligned with that fight. But I had another thought, too. And my other thought was this. We saw some uh, Ukrainian flags. We did. But there are a lot of people of Ukrainian descent in America, and there are a lot of people of Russian descent in America. Many. And we did not see a groundswell of hatred against Russian Americans or Ukrainian Americans after the war in Russia and Ukraine broke out. America took sides. Sure, we took sides for the Ukrainians against the Russians, but we did not translate that into 100,000% of incidents against either Russian or Ukrainian people in this country. And yet look what happened October 7th with Israel, which is an ally of the United States in the Middle East. Look at this concerted effort. This is not one day or one month in the making. This is a generation in the making. This is a generation of wrong history and brainwashing in the making that is coming to fruition now on American soil with a 388% increase in anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th because of the war in the Middle East. And because, let's face it, of a response to a terrorist attack. That's what this is. It is a war being fought in response to a heinous terrorist attack. Like we did after 9-11. And I just want to say, and I want us to notice, that the response of the American people, as a people, to this conflict has been a rise in anti-Semitic incidents on college campuses and elsewhere that cannot be explained merely because of one Hamas attack in Israel. It's because of a seed of ugliness that has borne fruit for a long time. I'm Lisa Wexler. We'll be back. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.